Chapter Seven of *The Girl at Central* by Geraldine Bonner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Girl at Central* by Geraldine Bonner. Chapter Seven. The doctor was as calm and matter-of-fact as if he were giving a lecture to a class of students. He looked much better than he did that morning in the exchange, rested and with a good color. As he settled himself in the chair, I heard one of the reporters whisper. I wouldn't call that the mug of a murderer. I looked over my shoulder, right at the one who had spoken, a young chap with a round, rosy, innocent sort of face like a kid's, and yellow hair standing up over his head as thick as sheep's wool. I'd seen him several times in the exchange and knew his name was Babbitts, and that the other fellows called him Soapy. When he caught my eye, he winked, and you couldn't be mad because it was like a big pink baby winking at you. The doctor told his story more straight and continuous than any of the others. It went along so clear from point to point that the coroner didn't have to ask so many questions, and when he did, the doctor was always ready with his answer. It sounded to me as if he'd thought out every detail, working it up just right to get the best effect. He began with Saturday morning when he'd got the call to go to the Dalzells. An operation was performed early that afternoon, and I stayed during the night and all the next day, going out on Sunday morning at ten for an hour's ride in my motor. I had decided to remain Sunday night, too, though the patient was out of danger, when at about eight I received a telephone message from my wife, saying Miss Hesketh had run away with Jack Reddy. Hearing from her that their route would be by the turnpike to Bloomington, I made up my mind that my best course was to strike the turnpike and intercept them. You disapproved of their marriage? Decidedly. Miss Hesketh was too young to know her own mind. Mr. Reddy was not the husband I would have chosen for her, not to mention the distress it would have caused Mrs. Fowler to have her daughter marry in that manner. My desire to keep the escapade secret made me tell Mrs. Dalzell a falsehood. That I was called away on an important case. The Dalzell's chauffeur told me that the road from their place to the turnpike was impassable for motors. The best route for me would be to go to the junction, where I could strike the Riven Rock Road, which came out on the turnpike about a mile from Cresset's Crossing. I had plenty of time, as the distance young Reddy would have to travel before he reached that point was nearly a hundred and twenty miles. I arrived at the junction as the train for Philadelphia was drawing out. I spoke to Clark, the station agent, about the road and after getting the directions walked around the depot to the back platform where my car stood. As I passed the door of the waiting room it suddenly opened and a woman came out. He stopped, just for a moment, as if to let the people get the effect of his words. A rustle went over the room but he looked as if he didn't notice it, and went on as calm and natural as if he was telling us a fiction story. I probably wouldn't have noticed her if she hadn't given a suppressed cry and cowered back in the doorway. That made me look at her, and, to my amazement, I saw it was Miss Hesketh's maid, Virginie Dupont. Nobody expected it. If he'd wanted to spring a sensation, he'd done it. We were all leaning forward with our mouths open. The moment I saw her I remembered that my wife had told me the woman had gone with Miss Hesketh. 
One glance into the waiting-room told me that she was alone, and I turned on her and told her I knew of the elopement, and asked her what she was doing there. She was evidently terrified by my unexpected appearance, but seeing she was caught, she confessed that she knew all about it, in fact that she had been instructed by Miss Hesketh to go to Philadelphia by the branch line, take a room at the Bellevue Stratford, and wait there until her mistress appeared. I was enraged and let her see it, pushing her round to the car and ordering her into the back seat. I vaguely noticed that she carried a bag and wrap over her arm. She tried to excuse herself, but I shut her up and took my seat at the wheel. There was no one on the platform as we went out. It took me over an hour to negotiate the distance between the junction and the turnpike. The road was in a fearful condition. We ran into chuck holes and threw water nearly to the hubs. Once the right front wheel dropping into a washout, the lamp struck a stump and was so shattered it had to be put out. My attention was concentrated on the path, especially after we left the open country and entered a thick wood where, with one lamp out of commission, I had to almost feel my way. I said not a word to the woman, nor she to me. It was not till I was once again in the open that I turned to speak to her, and saw she was gone. Gone, said one of the jury, a raw-boned, bearded old man like a farmer, so interested he spoke right out. Yes, gone. I guessed in a moment what she had done, either when I had stopped to put out the lamp, or in one of the pauses while I was feeling my way through the woods, she had slipped out and run. It would have been easy for her to hide in the dark of the trees. I glanced into the tenue and saw that the things she had carried, the bag and the wrap, were also missing. She had been frightened and made her escape. Unfortunately, in the shock and horror of the next day, the whole matter slipped my mind, and she had time to complete her getaway, probably by the branch line early Sunday morning. The coroner here explained that inquiries had since been made at the branch line stations for the woman, but nobody had been found who had seen her. I had no time to go back and look for her, and, anyway, it would have been useless as she could have hidden from a sheriff's posse in the wood. Besides, my whole interest was focused on reaching the turnpike. I could see it before me, a long winding line between the dark edges of small trees. I turned into it and let the car out. Though the road has many turns, I could have seen the lamps of a motor some distance ahead, and I ran fast, looking neither to the right nor left, but watching for approaching lights. On my ride back, I met only a few vehicles, several farmers' wagons, and the car of Dr. Pease, the Longwood practitioner. I reached home about two and went at once to my wife's room. She was in a hysterical state, and I stayed with her about an hour or so trying to quiet her. When she was better, I retired to my own apartment and at seven called up Walter Mills, a detective in New York, telling him to come to Longwood as soon as he could. By this time I was uneasy, not that I had any suspicion of a real tragedy, but the disappearance of Miss Hesketh alarmed me. I met Mills at the train, 
and told him the situation and that i intended telephoning to fisk at bloomington thinking they might have reached there by some other way it was his suggestion that before any step was taken which might make the matter public it would be well to communicate with firehill and see if the servants knew anything i did this and to my amazement learned that reddy was there that is all of the doctor's testimony that i need to put down as the rest of it you know it left us in a sort of mixed-up surprise no one could have told it better no one could have been more sure about it or more quiet and natural but it seems like i ought to write that word in the biggest letters to give the idea of how it stood out in my mind of all the stories it was the strangest and it was so awfully pat i don't know how you feel about it reading it as i've written it here but i can say for myself listening and watching that man tell it i couldn't seem to believe it it was near to evening the room getting dusk and the fire showing up large and bright when the jury brought in their verdict the deceased met her death at the hands of a person or persons unknown i walked back up maple lane the night was setting in cold and frosty the clouds had drawn off the air was clear as crystal and full of the sounds of motor horns big and little cars passed me jouncing over the ruts and swinging around the bend where the pines stood i was looking up at it black like a skeleton against the glow in the west when a step came up behind me and a voice said you're a good witness miss morgenthau it was that fresh kid babbitts and i wasn't sorry to have him join me as i was feeling as if i'd been sitting in a tomb he was serious too not a wink about him now his eyes on the ground his hands dug down in the pocket of his overcoat a strange case isn't it he said awful strange i answered if it wasn't for your story of that man on the phone i think they'd arrest dr fowler tonight didn't you believe what he said I wasn't going to give away my thoughts any more than I'd been willing to give away what I'd heard on the wire. And it seemed that he was the same, for he answered slow and thoughtful. I'm not saying what I believe or don't believe, and maybe it's better if I say I'm not ready yet to believe or disbelieve anything. Then he looked up at the sky, read behind the trees, and spoke easy and careless. They say Miss Hesketh had a good many admirers. Do they? was all he got out of me that made him laugh jolly and boyish oh you needn't keep your guard up now your stuff'll be in the paper tomorrow and take it from me that fellow that sent the message is going to get a jar the man i listened to sure he hasn't got the ghost of an idea anyone overheard him can't you imagine how he'll feel when he opens his papers and see that a smart little hello girl was tapping the wire it's funny but i'd never thought of it that way why he'd get a shock like dynamite it got hold of me so that i didn't speak for a spell thinking of that man reading his paper tomorrow over his coffee or maybe going down in the l and suddenly seeing printed out in black and white what he thought no one in the world knew except himself and that poor dead girl babbitts went on talking me listening with one ear which comes natural to an operator We've been rounding up all the men that were after her, not that they were backward with their alibis, only too glad to be of service, thank you, 
Karis Burke was at Aiken, a lawyer named Dunham was upstate trying a case, Robinson, a chap in a bank, was spending the weekend in Long Island. There was only one of them near here, a man named Cokesbury. Do you know him? Both my ears got busy. Cokesbury, I said, sort of startled. Was Cokesbury at the lodge last week? He was, and I know just what he did. What did he do? He laughed out as gay as you please, for he saw he'd got me just where he wanted. When I've tried to find out things from you, you've turned me down. Ah, oh, go on, I said, coaxing. Don't you know by experience I'm no talking machine to give out every word that's said to me? I believe you, he answered. And it'll be good for your character for me to set a generous example. Cokesbury was at the lodge from last Saturday on the 110 train to last Monday on the 820. Gee, I said, soft to myself. You can quell those rising hopes, he replied. He wasn't the man you heard. How do you know? Because, hearing that he was a friend of Miss Hesketh's, I spent part of yesterday at Azalea and found that Mr. Cokesbury can prove as good an alibi as any of them. Did you see him? No, he wasn't there, and if he had been I wouldn't have bothered with him. I saw someone much better, Miner, the man who owns the Azalea garage where Cokesbury puts up his car. It appears that the trip before last, Cokesbury broke his axle and had to have his car towed down to the garage and left there to be mended. When he came down Saturday, he expected it to be done, and when it wasn't, got in a rage and raised the devil of a row. He had to go out to his place in one of Miner's cars, which left him there, and went back for him Monday morning. Then he had no auto one Sunday. Miss Morgenthau will take the head of the class. Then he said, low, as if to someone beside him, She's our prize pupil, but we don't say it before her face for fear of making her proud. Then back to me as solemn as a priest in the pulpit. That is the situation reduced to its lowest terms. He had no car. Well, that ends him, I said. So it seems to me. In fact, Cokesbury gets the gate. I won't hide from you now that I went to Azalea because I'd heard a rumor of that talk on the phone and thought I'd do a little private sleuthing on my own. Didn't know but what I was destined to be the baby Grand Burns. And nothing's come of it. Nothing except that it drops Cokesbury out with a thud that's dull and sickening for me. But you can bet your best hat it's just the opposite for him. Well, I guess yes, I said, and walked along wondering to myself whose voice that could have been. End of chapter 7